This is Only a Game. I'm Karen Given. At the end of last week's show, I asked listeners to let me know what stories you'd like to hear again during these last four weeks of the program. And boy, howdy, did you respond. We're going to start with a story that was requested by podcast listener Bill Holland. He wrote, quote, Of the many stories you did over the years, the most meaningful to me was the story about Bob Cousy and Bill Russell. With all of the horrible unrest going on in this world, that piece is something everyone should listen to. There's not a lot that Bob Cousy could have done better on the basketball court. He led the league in assists for eight straight years. He won six NBA championships with the Boston Celtics. But two years ago, Cousy told Only a Game's Gary Wallach that there are some things he wishes he had done differently. At the end of the day, when you're sitting reviewing your life, you have a lot of regrets as to how you should have, could have done things better. Here's Gary. On a cold autumn morning, Bob Cousy greets me at the front door as the leaves fall around his home in Worcester, Massachusetts. He's lived there alone since his wife died in 2013. I shake his hand and ask him how he's doing. Never ask a 90-year-old that question, he says. He brandishes his cane for emphasis. We sit at his enormous dining room table and talk about his early days on the Celtics. His hands move like he's throwing passes to invisible teammates as he discusses his rookie year. Well, we had some talented players. We had some not-so-talented players. Cousy says that his fellow rookie, Chuck Cooper, was a five or six on a ten scale, talent-wise. But Cooper was something else. Jackie Robinson broke the color line in baseball in 1947. Three years later... Our owner, Walla Brown, got up at the meeting and said, the Celtics draft Chuck Cooper from Duquesne. Cousy had no black friends growing up in a Manhattan tenement. He had no black teammates in high school or college. Now he was roommates with the first black player selected in the NBA draft. They went to movies, listened to jazz, and drank at bars. Their bond was tested on February 28, 1952, after a game in Raleigh. And he wasn't uh, allowed to register in a hotel with us. And Chuck and I somehow found out that there was a sleeper going through Raleigh that night at 12.30 to New York with a connection to Boston. Cousy and Cooper went to Union Station to wait for the sleeper train. We start drinking beer. And after three or four beers, it's like midnight. And we have to go whiz. They made their way to the restroom. Cousy was unprepared for what he saw stupid signs, big white signs with a black arrow, one pointing right says colored, the other pointing left says white. And I was stunned. I didn't, I was ashamed to be white. I didn't know what to say to him. I said, come on, let's go out. We go out to the end of the platform and we peed together. (laughs) Their friendship grew off the court and on it. Cooper was a good player, but Cousy, a point guard, was beginning to transform the league. This is the 1950s, and he's a little bit like Elvis Presley in music or James Dean in film. That's writer Gary Pomerantz. He's interviewed Cousy over 50 times. He's a renegade, pushing out against the conservative norms, dribbling behind his back and and throwing no-look passes. He was adding sort of a jolt of caffeine to the NBA, a jolt of style. But the Celts were only slightly better than mediocre. They were a team struggling to find itself. 
the Celtics needed a big man to make it to the next level. In a trade after the 1956 draft, the Celtics acquired center Bill Russell. Russ changed the dynamic in every way. He was a fearsome shot blocker. He put a trauma on opposing shooters. And he was a great rebounder. An opponent would take a shot and miss, and there's Russell rising, rising, 6'10", long, lean, and springy, getting the rebound, and half-turning and snap-passing the outlet to Kuzi. Russell and Kuzi created a fast-break style that was nearly indefensible. These are, in many ways, the ultimate teammates. They were both murderously competitive, and very quickly the Celtics emerged as a force to be reckoned with. Russell and Kuz had a relatively tight relationship on the court. That's forward Satch Sanders. He joined the Celtics in 1960. They had a lot of respect for each other. That was clear. Off the court, they were not spending a lot of time in each other's company. Racial tensions were high in the U.S. That carried over into some NBA locker rooms. But Sanders says that wasn't the case with the Celtics. Kuzi says Red Auerbach, who he alone called by his first name Arnold, created clubhouse harmony in a rather unusual way. I think Arnold, frankly, solved the black-white situation pretty well. He treated everyone the same, badly. You know? So Russ and I's relationship was the same as any two people that are working towards a goal. The goal was to win championships. And with Russell, the Celtics began to do that. But something else was happening at the outset of the Celtics dynasty, Gary Pomerantz. Russell and Cousy were together for seven years as teammates. And if you put that on the civil rights timeline, it's roughly from the end of the Montgomery bus boycott to Dr. King's March on Washington Address in 1963. That is the heart of the black freedom struggle. And, and Russell would engage in that struggle in a way that few athletes did. On October 17, 1961, the Celtics played a preseason exhibition game in Lexington, Kentucky. Satch Sanders remembers what happened at the team hotel before the game. We had gone downstairs to eat, and uh, they said, well, we really can't serve you people. They weren't happy about it, and they gathered in Russell's room of the hotel. Russell and Sanders, along with Casey Jones and Sam Jones, decided not to play. And Red didn't want to turn away from a nice payday for the team. So he tried to convince the African-American Celtics to stay. And Russell said, we're going home. The white players gave it consideration, but in the end, they decided to play the game. Seven white Celtics played, including Bob Cousy, who didn't protest. I have no explanation for this feeling, as I do, about social justice, being a captain of the team. When Gary Pomerantz originally asked Cousy about the game, he said he didn't remember it. Cousy said, why did I play? What was I thinking? It was an exhibition game. Why didn't I say something? I think he was so focused on being Bob Cousy, some of the most essential American history of the second half of the century passed him by, went over his head. He was focused on winning. He was focused on his endorsements and his brand. And it just went by. Meanwhile, Bill Russell spoke more and more publicly about civil rights and the treatment of African Americans. He called Boston a racist city. The press went to Russell for quotes, but... They didn't like him because he exuded arrogance, confidence, and all the other things that black guys should not have. 
in a lot of estimations. In 1963, someone broke into Bill Russell's home, scrawled insults on the walls, and defecated in his bed. Russell wore his anger even more prominently on his sleeve. Russ was the ultimate angry black man. And I didn't blame him then, and I blame him even less now. Cousy says it pained him to watch African-Americans struggle for acceptance and inclusion. But he remained quiet. And Cousy says Russell's anger made it hard for them to form a friendship, like the ones Cousy had enjoyed with Chuck Cooper and some of his other black teammates. Let's go have a beer, let's go to the movie together, whatever, or socialize outside of the unit. I was a senior member. I had a good relationship with the media, I always have. So I could have reached out and perhaps shared his pain a little bit with him, you know. I never did that with Russ. Bob Cousy retired at the end of the 62-63 season, after yet another successful title run. He and Russell had led the Celtics to six NBA championships in their seven seasons together. The Celtics gathered for a postseason dinner. And Bill Russell took to the podium to speak. And what Russell said was, you meet very few men in life like Bob Cousy. I consider Cousy like a brother. And Russell became emotional at this point. Cousy doesn't really remember that either. Obviously, this should have been special to me. When I read what he said, it brought back a slight memory, and it brought a tear to my eye, but uh, I don't know why I don't remember it more specifically, other than I'm 90 freaking years old. (laughs) That's something to do with it, you know. When I read these quotes to Cousy during an interview, Cousy just started shaking his head. He said, what was I thinking? Why didn't I get up and go across the room and give Russ a hug. In the fall of 1963, the Celtics became Bill Russell's team, unless that had happened much earlier. Russell retired as a player in 1969. After 13 seasons in the NBA, he had earned 11 championship rings. Cousy did a lot of thinking over three decades about how he'd fallen short as a team leader. But he didn't talk about it until a 2001 ESPN interview about Russell. And he was talking in a breezy way about Russell's extraordinary athleticism. But the topic shifted to race. I should have been much more sensitive to Russell's anguish in those days. Uh, We talk... uh... (laughs) And he just broke down sobbing. He buried his head in his hands on camera. A couple months later, Cousy attended a charity golf event in Florida. Russell, who had seen Cousy's ESPN interview, was there too. And Cousy had no idea what to expect. Russ and I, I always said over the years, had kind of a love-hate relationship. And he'd either kind of ignore me or glare at me, or in this case... He ran over and threw his arms around me, and, and we talked about this first meaningful conversation we probably ever had in our relationship. And he basically said, Coos, whatever you might have done wouldn't have been helpful. He said what he had to do to make me feel better, I guess. And I appreciated that. And he hoped this conversation would lead to a higher ground in their relationship, a deeper friendship. But it really didn't. 
I thought about it for 15 to 16 years, and I wrote him a letter three years ago, pretty much doing a mea culpa. Cousy hand-wrote that letter. And I basically said, Russ, I know we've never been pen pals, and I'm sorry about that. It was my responsibility to reach out to you and hopefully share the pain that you had during that period or minimize it or whatever. However, I didn't do that. Sorry about that. And that was it. Well, then six months passed without a response, and then a year, and then two years, and then two and a half years later, in 2018, Cousy got a call on a Sunday night at home. It was an old, somewhat enfeebled voice saying, Bob, it's Bill Russell. I'm calling to see how you are. They talked for about 10 or 12 minutes, according to Cousy. And then he asked the question, Russ, I sent you a letter a couple years ago. Did you get it? And Bill Russell said, yes, I did. Thank you. Nothing more. Was Russell's response brief because he was angry? Not angry at all? Cousy wouldn't speculate. I asked him if Bill Russell's simple response of yes was sufficient. Yes, absolutely. For three seasons, Satch Sanders observed the relationship between Bob Cousy and Bill Russell up close. I asked him if he thinks Cousy owed Russell an apology. No, I don't think Cousy owed him an apology. But I do think that Cousy, because he was Cousy, thought he could do more. And then started thinking that he should have done more. Because he's a man of conscience and sensitive. Could he have done more? Possibly. But he feels he could do more, and that's what really counts. I do a lot of meditating these days, thinking about the old days, but I notice I blank out the negatives as much as I can, and I focus on the positives. When our conversation is over, Bob Cousy shows me to the door. Audemars rushes in as he retrieves a plate of food a neighbor covered in tinfoil and left for him on the front step. I say goodbye and shake his hand, the one that threw so many perfect passes to his teammates, the one that held the pen as he wrote a letter to Bill Russell. That's Only a Game's Gary Wallach, with a story that first aired in December of 2018. Gary Pomerantz's book is The Last Pass, Cousy, Russell, The Celtics, and What Matters in the End. The band Devo wanted to use a photo of golfer Chichi Rodriguez on the cover of their first full-length album, but the idea didn't go over well with a VP at their label. That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Need to escape the news for a moment? Check out Endless Thread, a podcast from WBUR and Reddit. From mysteries to histories to stories that will remind you of our shared humanity. Subscribe to Endless Thread on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Karen Given. Okay, look, I'm not going to say that if you have me as a guest on your podcast, I'm more likely to air your request. But the fact is, I was a guest on the Rink Stories podcast, and when their request came in via Twitter, I could not resist. 
This story was actually a decade in the works. That's how long it took reporter Sean Cole to track down everyone he needed to track down. It involved the band Devo, best known for their 1980 hit Whip It, and for wearing flower pot looking hats and yellow hazmat suits on stage, and an equally colorful athlete who wound up being a kind of mascot for the band. Here's Sean. To understand what happened, you need to know that Devo has a pretty considered philosophy, and that is that the human race is in a state of de-evolution, hence the name of the band. Their songs are about things like corporate control and blind conformity, and they were visual artists first, before they even wrote any songs. This was in the early 70s in Akron, Ohio. So one of the founders, Jerry Casali, says they were always trying to figure out what devolved art would look like. You know, because we were very, very enamored and put off at the same time by pop culture, like the lowest end of like ad graphics, terrible TV commercials. So we're walking through the Kmart. Nope, it was the predecessor to Kmart. It was Click. This is Mark Mothersbaugh, another founder of the band. I should probably mention here that this was more than four decades ago, so a lot of the details are fuzzy for folks. Anyway, they're in the department store. We were looking for supplies. We were collaborating on a visual art piece together and walking through the sports section. And there's these six practice golf balls in a clear plastic pouch uh, sealed shut at the top with a cardboard display head. The kind that you hang on a metal hook. And on that display head is an illustration of the smiling face of the renowned golfer Chichi Rodriguez. I saw it and I just loved it. It was a picture of him in front of a golf ball. So his head's kind of haloed by a big golf ball. Kind of imitating uh, something that I'd already been printing, which was human heads in front of the moon, and it made us laugh. We chuckle. We have to have that. And, and of course, golf was almost symbolically like the most lame kind of, you know, bourgeois pursuit that you could have, especially at that time. Unless your parents were rich, you didn't get to go golfing. If we ever imagined ourselves on a golf course, it was probably as a caddy. And how boring it looked then on TV and the announcing. Yeah. But the one guy who stood out was Chi-Chi because he didn't fit with the rest of the golfers at all. Hmm. He wore these loud pants and uh, bright shirts, and he had this famous hat that only he wore, which had a specific hat band and, you know, Panama a straw hat, yeah. Panama kind of hat. Yeah. So they took the package home. Mark used the picture in a self-published manifesto he was writing about being a quote-unquote spud boy in the rubber town of Akron. But other than that, nothing really happened with it until we were already putting out our self-produced single, Be Stiff. Somehow, and I don't really remember the moment, but we had the idea of putting Chi-Chi on that cover. On the cover of the 45. Be Stiff was a kind of jokey anthem, celebrating the literal stiffness, uptightness, of politicians, televangelists. So using that image of Chi-Chi on the cover was a kind of comment on commercialism and America's obsession with selling. And in this case, selling plastic golf balls and the Americana of the golfer. Be Stiff came out in 1978 on Stiff Records. They wrote the song well before they signed with the label. And it was distributed in the UK, where not as many people were familiar with Chi-Chi. And then about four months later, Devo got its big break. Warner Brothers signed the band for their first full-length album. And that, says Jerry, is when the real de-evolution began. 
okay, we've laid that whole thing out and working up to this moment. And then comes the real Devo twist that only a corporation could provide. In other words, what we're talking about, we become part of. This new album had the very long title of Question, Are We Not Men? Answer, We Are Devo. Jerry and Mark and the others thought, since the picture of Chi-Chi worked so well on the Be Stiff single, let's just stick with it and put it on the cover of this record. The guys worked with the Warner Brothers art department, getting everything mocked up and ready to be approved for production. And then about two days later, we get this call, and it's a big crisis. The call was from the vice president of business affairs for Warner Brothers. David Berman, who was a guy that you would cast in a movie about the music business. As the villain or as the hero? Well, it just depends on your point of view. He was very smart, very good at what he did, and played hardball. And the first communication is, I'm a golfer, and I'm a fan of golf, and I know Chi-Chi Rodriguez. I've met Chi-Chi Rodriguez. You cannot use Chi-Chi Rodriguez. That is completely and totally false. This is David Berman. I told you not everybody's memory is crystal clear regarding this story. Not only have I never met, I have never seen Chichi Rodriguez other than on television. I'm not going to make fun of a friend of mine. I've never met him. I've never spoken to him. I'm not going to get this company sued. That part is accurate, says David Berman, about maybe being sued. Yes, he did play hardball, but he says his objection was purely a legal one. Purely. And California law is crystal clear. You can't use somebody's name or likeness for commercial purposes without their permission. It had nothing to do with my being a golfer other than because I was, I knew that it was clearly Chichi Rodriguez. But it wasn't the fact that he was likable. It could have been Rory Sabatini and I would have done the same thing. Wait, who is Rory Sabatini? He's a golfer. Uh-huh. But nobody likes Rory Sabatini. Also, Rory Sabatini was born in 1976 and would have been two years old when the Devo album came out. Anyway... Jerry Casali says this was a total shock to the band. We're dumbfounded and crestfallen. We don't know what to do. and But of course, we're stubborn. We're not giving up. So Devo decides to write Chi-Chi Rodriguez a letter to formally ask his permission. But the way these things work, as soon as the record company starts spending money, they want to see a return on their investment. Plus, Devo was scheduled to appear on Saturday Night Live less than two months after the record was released in August of 78. So if production was late no album to promote. Meanwhile, the band had another idea, involving another piece of de-evolutionary art. It's an artist rendering of what the last four presidents would have looked like had you combined them. So Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford all mashed together. It was a picture Mark Mothersbaugh had lying around. And it was this hideous, bizarre face that had John Kennedy's hairline, and it had uh, Lyndon Johnson's uh, ears and Richard Nixon's nose. So the band brings that image to the Warner Brothers art department. On an idea that why couldn't we just <laughs> mutate Chi-Chi's face <laughs> so, so that it isn't Chi-Chi anymore? It was like building an old Mr. Potato Head toy. They grafted Johnson's ears and Nixon's nose on Chi-Chi's head, reversed the mouth. David Berman from Business Affairs doesn't even remember this, that the image was altered. So I sent him the original Chi-Chi image and the potato head collage so he could compare. Looking at it today, I wonder why I approved it, because to me it still looks like Chi-Chi. <laughs> but obviously I must have. Jerry Casali. And um, about three weeks later, a letter comes back from Chi-Chi's representatives. No. Saying... 
Yes, Chi-Chi thinks it's fine to use that image. He just wants 50 records at Christmas time to give out to his friends and family. He wanted to say to his friends and family, like, look, I'm on a record. Right. He liked that. Mark Mothersbaugh. And so it was at that point, it's like we couldn't go back. It, they'd already printed the cover. So now we had this mutilated potato face for an album cover. And it didn't really look like the handsome Chi-Chi anymore. So I'm sure he was quite surprised when he got a box of them in the mail. All our efforts were, in fact, in earnest. But what it looked like in the end is that Devo had meanly tricked <laughs> Chichi Rodriguez and put out something that made him look hideous. It was, you know, it was a mess. Although, along with the records, Warner Brothers sent Chichi a check for $2,500, so it wasn't a total loss for him. The band was never in touch with Chichi again, except he did send Mark Mothersbaugh a couple of publicity shots of himself saying, if you want to use more pictures of me, use these. And now it's almost 40 years later, and a few questions still remain. I really want to know if Chichi ever listened to that record and what he thought of it. Yeah, that would be the big question. Well, why don't you interview Chichi Rodriguez? Hello. Hello, Chichi Rodriguez? Yeah, who's this? It's it's Sean Cole. I reached Chichi at a country club naturally, in West Palm Beach, Florida. He's 81 now, still handsome, still plays golf now and then, not professionally, does a lot of philanthropic work through his foundation and an annual charity event. It's really an honor to talk to you. It's my honor to talk to you, Johnny. It's Sean, but that's okay. Chichi remembers his manager getting the letter from Devo, his manager who was also from Akron, Ohio, so there was a connection there, and he says yes, he did ask for a box of records, and he did hand them out to his friends and family. Did you notice when you got the record that it didn't quite look like you that much? Well, it looked like me. I, I look at the pluses. It looked like me a little bit. At least, <laughs> at least the hat looked like me. He didn't seem to know anything about all the Michigas that went down at Warner Brothers. Didn't know at all that they were worried he would sue them. Sue them? Well, anybody that worries about somebody suing them, that, that means that they're so crooked that uh, they sue people and they, they think that people are going to sue them. I thought it was the, the, these young people trying to make a career out of it, and I could help them, and that's it. Because I, I, I like to do something good every day of my, of my life, and I, li- I want to live the, uh, the earth better than I found it. So even young, sort of avant-garde punk musicians you want to help? Yeah. Did you listen to that record? Yeah, I listened to it one time. Just once? I put it away. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't like it? No, I didn't like it. I liked Frank Sinatra and uh, Nat King Cole and uh, Dean Martin, who was my favorite, you know? Because music is not supposed to rile you up. Music is something to bring you down. So that's that big question answered. But there was a second big question that I'd had this entire time, which was, what did Chi-Chi think about his face, or a mutated version thereof, being on the cover of an apocalyptic weirdo art rock band's first album? Like, did that make any sense to him? And it did in the end. Because, of course, Chi-Chi knows he's Chi-Chi, knows how much he stands out, how outlandish and likable he is. None of that is lost on him. In fact, it's purposeful. Golf, golf is show business, and uh, when you're on stage, you got to give the people a show. Mm. And that's, that's what, uh, what Debo did. Debo came out and gave the people a good time. Well, so that is the similarity between you and Devo? Yes. So in a way, it really makes sense that they used you on the cover of their record. I think they were geniuses. And it takes a genius to recognize another. (laughs) (laughs) 
One could argue that... Again, Jerry Casale. What we were put through by David Berman (laughs) actually achieved something here better than just using a found image. So what you're saying is corporate interference plus the faces of four American presidents (laughs) who prosecuted the Vietnam War (laughs) and its aftermath... And this wonderfully dandyish golf legend, all of those <laughs> together. Yeah. It's more Devo than the, the original Chi-Chi image. Th- that's what I'm saying. It's Devo in action. Like, do you need an example of what we're talking about? Here it is. And in possibly the most diabolical Devo twist of all, Jerry Casale is a big golf fan these days. Watches it on TV all the time. That's reporter Sean Cole with a story we first aired back in August of 2017. What happens when a 7'5 NBA player shows up for a learn-to-swim class? No matter where he is, it's the shallow end, and it's up to his ribs. That's coming up on Only a Game from NPR. Who doesn't love a good story? On Circle Round, the storytelling podcast from WBUR, we adapt folk tales from around the world as radio plays, featuring beloved stars of the stage and screen, like Seinfeld's Jason Alexander, Hamilton star Philippa Sue, and Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Award winner Billy Porter. Circle Round has been named a top kids podcast by The New York Times, Good Housekeeping, and Time Magazine, and we think you'll love it too. Find Circle Round wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Karen Given. We have time today for a couple more listener favorites. First up, a request from Twitter user at Ghostal Service, who said this story, quote, always makes me tear up. It's a story about baseball cards. The oldest, rarest cards sell for over a million dollars at auction. But back in 2018, an avid collector started putting together a special set of cards that he didn't intend to sell. He planned to give them all away. Reporter Matthew Stock has the story. Growing up in South Carolina, Matthew Christian loved collecting baseball cards. I was one of those kids that just, you know, would nag and nag and nag until, you know, my mom or somebody would buy me those baseball card packs. So um, I got into it then, and then they realized, oh, he really likes this stuff. Matthew and his friends used to buy and trade cards every day after school. His original collection was stolen after college, but two years ago, he started building a new one. I probably have around, I'd say 50,000 baseball cards. In March of 2018, Matthew started his own business, a sort of social network for card collectors, People could message him, and he would track down the cards they were looking for. A few months ago, Matthew was at his house in Montana going through his inbox when he saw a message from a man named Patrick Friel in Jacksonville, Florida. Hey, I'm looking for my son's cards. And I didn't recognize the name quite at first. And I said, well, you know, where'd they go? You know, here I am. My cards were stolen. I'm thinking, okay, who took his son's cards and where'd they go? You know, what do you mean? Matthew and Patrick started messaging, and before long, Matthew realized Patrick wasn't looking for his son's collection. He was looking for cards of his son, 
Ryan Friel, a former Major League Baseball utility player with a reputation for leaving it all on the field. Friel gives chase, dives in front of the camera well, and hangs on. He wanted to get out there and kick butt. Reckless abandon. He'd go bounce off of walls if he could catch the ball. That's Patrick, Ryan's father. He says fans would chant Friel for real every time his son sacrificed his body to make a spectacular play. But this all-out hustle came with consequences. Patrick remembers a May 2007 game in Cincinnati when Ryan ran headlong into a fellow Reds outfielder. He had to be taken off the field in an ambulance. Ryan missed 30 games with head and neck contusions but played later in the season. Two years later with the Orioles... Pickoff play at second and it hits the runner. Wow. Ryan was hit. It's like right at the back of the head. He is still down at second base. Ryan left the game and was placed on the disabled list with head trauma. In total, he was diagnosed with at least 10 concussions during his playing days. 10's a big number. The literature is very clear. For every concussion we diagnose, we miss at least as many. That's Chris Nowinski. He's the co-founder and CEO of the Concussion Legacy Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to addressing the concussion crisis in sports. Having double digits diagnosed concussions is rare, and it's not going to be associated with great outcomes. Patrick says Ryan became forgetful and irritable after he retired in 2010. He battled depression and alcoholism, and on December 22, 2012, Ryan took his own life. He was 36 years old. After his death, Ryan was diagnosed with CTE, a condition that can cause the brain to deteriorate. His brain it looked like a, a, a Dalmatian puppy. It had black marks all over it. Probably dozens of areas of the brain, you know, some of them microscopic, some of them look like the size of quarters, where brain cells were, not, were, were dying or gone or not functioning. The research team at Boston University has diagnosed CTE in over 320 brains. What's unique about Ryan's case is the first diagnosed case of a person whose primary exposure to brain trauma came through baseball. It was a surprise because we don't consider baseball to be a contact sport in the same way that football or ice hockey or boxing are. But there's no reason that a baseball player couldn't have it because if you're diving every game, if you're running in the walls, if you're sliding head first into bases, brain trauma could be repetitive and considerable. Chris says Ryan's concussion history and the subsequent CTE diagnosis have already impacted baseball. The MLB now has a seven-day disabled list option for players on concussion watch, and new rules have sought to limit the type of damaging collisions that could result from Ryan's style of relentless hustle. He was a guy who played all out, there's no question about it. That's what we're all taught to appreciate. But now it sort of helps us understand, if we do find CT, where it could be coming from, because the people who do develop this disease have a tremendous exposure history and also are often considered the tough guys, the guys who are willing to sacrifice their body for their sport. Ryan's three daughters were little when their father died, and Patrick wanted to be sure that they had a special way to remember their dad, which is why Patrick contacted card collector Matthew Christian. He said, my son died tragically too young, and I'm looking for his baseball cards for my, my three granddaughters. Patrick wanted each of the girls to have their own binder full of Ryan's baseball cards. I said, you know what, Mr. Friel? I've seen all kinds of generous things that the sports card community has done for other people. I know they're going to step up and help this cause. Matthew Christian sent out messages to a few of his private collector groups on Facebook. He included his home address and asked that people send him their cards. He planned to gather them up and send them to Patrick. And while Matthew was waiting for responses, he dug through his own collection. 
and I could not find a single one, unfortunately. <laughs> Out of 50,000 cards, you didn't have a single one? I, I didn't have a single Ryan Friel card. But soon, a fellow collector shared Matthew's post on Twitter. Others joined the search. Hundreds of others. Matthew remembers the first envelope that came in the mail. At first, it was actually packaged with um, not enough postage. I think I owed the mailman like $2.60 or something. It was a plain white envelope, and it was just a stack of cards, I think, with a rubber band around them. The cards kept coming in. Matthew says that at his busiest, he was receiving 15 packages a day from as far away as Honduras. And while most of the cards were relatively commonplace, others, like a shimmering one-of-a-kind card he received recently, would make an avid collector's eyes light up. They made one of this card, and that is it. It's the golden ticket. Probably his highest value card, if I had to guess. And somebody was willing to send that and donate it to the family. So, pretty incredible. The outpouring of support hasn't stopped at just baseball cards. I've gotten Ryan Friel jerseys, an 8x10 photo uh, of Ryan, autographed by Ryan three or four baseballs he signed. I got a baseball from a gentleman that said, hey, Ryan flipped this baseball to me at the end of a game when I was six years old. Along with the cards and the memorabilia, Matthew has received letters for the Friel family. Many of them share fond memories of Ryan's playing days and admiration for the player who gave his all to baseball. Humanity can be awesome, and in this case, is another case of it. In mid-August, Ryan's father Patrick received a box in the mail, postmarked from Montana. Well, it came in, and my God, was it heavy. Uh, At least 30 or 40 pounds. Oh, my God, I've never seen so many cards. 250 different cards times 20 to 30 each. There was some there I didn't even know about. Over the past few months, Patrick has sorted the cards into three identical binders, one for each of his granddaughters. He wants to ensure that his son's legacy is passed on. He says he couldn't have done it without Matthew Christian's help. That's reporter Matthew Stock with a story that first aired in August of 2018. Some of this week's requests came in from people who were part of our 27 years, like former Only a Game intern Dana Haddock, who asked for three different stories, saying, quote, there are too many good ones, so I'll stick with those for now while I cry in my coffee. I'm with you, Dana, but I'll do what I can to cheer you up by honoring one of your requests. With a story that first aired last fall, here's Only a Game's Martin Kessler. Eight-year-old Kata is on the swim team at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's Charlestown Club. It's really fun, and we usually get to to play games, too, at the end. And I also really like diving off the diving block. What what kind of games do you play? Um, Sharks and minnows and fishy fishy. Kata's coach is Colby Cahill, the aquatics director at the Charlestown Club. Colby also teaches kids at the club how to swim. We have them do bobs. Um, we try to teach them how to float. Um, how, how tall are your typical <laughs> swimmers? Uh, I think they range from three feet to like, probably like four, ten, something like that. But a few weeks ago, Colby learned from her boss, Derek, that she was getting a new student. 
So Derek actually came up to me and he was like, we have a Celtics player who wants to come in. And at first I thought they just wanted to like help out with the swim lesson. I didn't know that they didn't actually know how to swim until um, someone told me. So when he came in, I literally looked all the way up and I was like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna do this? Colby's new student wasn't just any Celtics player. It was rookie Taco Fall. Taco's in the game. Taco's here. And everyone loves him. Doesn't take much to jam that home when you're 7'6". Taco Fall is listed on the Celtics roster at 7 feet and 5 inches. And since signing with Boston last July as an undrafted free agent, Taco has been more than a Celtics fan favorite. He's become one of the most closely followed and cheered for basketball players in the world. A couple weeks ago, ESPN's Jackie McMullen wrote that, quote, Fall's on-court appearances at the NBA Summer League were greeted with the same enthusiasm as the coronation of the king. But for someone who draws a royal reaction, Taco Fall seems to have simple tastes. All right. Do you want to just tell me uh, what you had for breakfast to set a level on your voice? What I had for breakfast today, uh, oatmeal with yogurt. Oatmeal with yogurt is like the cheat code. You put yogurt in oatmeal, it's good. Taco Fall is 23 years old. He grew up in Dakar, Senegal. Dakar is a very small city, but it's a lot of people. And how close were you to the water? I was, I was right by the water. Like we, it's not an island, but it's like I would say, Dakar was like 60, 70 percent surrounded by water. Taco says if other houses weren't in the way, he could have seen the water from his home. Would your friends and stuff would they go swimming all growing up? All the time, all the time. But my mom, my my mom wouldn't. She never really let me do it. Why not? Because she, she was just too... Everywhere she went, I went with her. Like, she would never let me leave her sight. She was just sort of worried about you or wanted to watch out for you. Yeah. So Taco didn't go to the beach with his friends, never learned to swim. But when he was a teenager, he did leave his mom to go to the U.S. to pursue basketball. He ended up at a high school in Florida where he scored in the 95th percentile on the SAT and reportedly drew interest from the Harvard and Princeton basketball teams. Taco signed on to play basketball at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, about an hour from Daytona Beach. Did, did your friends know that you couldn't swim? Oh yeah, everybody knew I couldn't swim. I mean, I never really had a shame saying I couldn't swim because it's just, yeah, I can't, I can't swim. Back in high school, Taco said he'd rather grow up to be Steve Jobs than LeBron James, and someday he might still work in tech. But after graduating from UCF in May, Taco signed with the Celtics. That's how he got to know Celtics Vice President of Public Relations, Heather Walker, who used to work as a lifeguard. When the two were talking before the season, she learned that Taco had never learned to swim. And she said, I'm going to make a commitment to get you to learn how to swim. I'll say, sure, i do it. And that's how it started. The Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston's Charlestown Club is located just across the Charles River from the Celtics' home arena, the TD Garden. You can look out one of our windows and you can see the garden from where we are. That's Derek Gallagher, executive director of the Charlestown Club. Derek grew up in a housing development down the street from the club in the 70s and 80s. He made it to a lot of Celtics games. But I'm going to be honest with you. There was a building across the street where if you went up, a guy from Charlestown worked on the elevator. You went across like a little walkway 
and the bull gang who sets the floor and stuff, they were all from Charlestown. So you just walked in. You had to find a seat, but I got in the building whenever we wanted. So for years and years and years, that's what you and my friends did. <laughs> so I probably owe the Celtics a few dollars. <laughs> Derek grew up going to the Charlestown Club. That's where he got good enough at swimming to become a lifeguard. He worked his way up through the organization, going from junior staff to athletic director to program director. And he says about 15 years ago, the Boys and Girls Clubs of Boston came up with a goal. Every kid in the club would learn to swim. Doesn't mean you're going to be doing the 400 IM and the swim team, but you're going to learn enough where if you were to fall in the water, caught in a riptide, if you were on a jetty and you were able to swim, tread water, be able to get yourself to safety. Because that, to us, it's a life skill. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, in 2017, drowning was the second leading cause of injury death for children ages 5 to 9 across the U.S., and the fifth leading cause for children 10 to 14. And children who grow up in cities or in poorer communities usually have less access to swimming lessons and pools. So every day, Colby Cahill, aquatics director, is at the club in Charlestown giving lessons. And that presented an opportunity for Taco Fall and the Celtics. Taco could go to the Charlestown Club to learn to swim and to raise awareness about drowning risk. So in late September, Colby's new student showed up. The kids were going crazy. At first they were like, oh my God, who is this guy? And then once like, they realized who it was, they were going, oh my God, get in the water, Like, come on. But getting in the water wasn't so easy for Taco Fall. I did not want to let go of the side of the, I was a little bit scared to drown. Well, how deep was the pool? Because it would have to be pretty deep for you to drown. I'm like the five, six feet <laughs> But Taco got more and more comfortable. Three, two, one. He was awesome. He was like one of my best students, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Taco and the kids worked on holding their breath underwater, floating, paddling. And if our kids see an NBA player who's looking to learn how to swim, of course they're going to want to learn how to swim. So to us, it, this makes our job easier. But one lesson wasn't going to be enough. So a few weeks later, Taco Fall returned to the pool. Eight-year-old Kata from the swim team was there. Like, I've never seen, like, a really tall person, no matter where he is, it's the shallow end, and it's up to his ribs. <laughs> and he needed five kickboards and a stack so he can float. Yeah, how many kickboards do you need normally? One. <laughs> Kata and her older brother Zoltan were happy to help Taco out. Um, he said, how do you swim that fast and how can you breathe? And I told him to um, try pushing off the wall a little harder. Taco says this time, for his second lesson, he was no longer scared of drowning. And he brought along two of his teammates, Grant Williams and Shemi Ojale. Grant did really good. Shemi and I were, did, I did better than Shemi, I thought. <laughs> Colby could notice a difference in her tallest student. The second time he was like jumping in, he was like showing like Grant and Shemi what to do and like he showed Grant how to do a bob properly. And so instead of like the kids wanting to demonstrate, he was actually demonstrating for his friends. I think it's cool to go to the pool and I have to just sit on the side. And it actually feels really relaxing. Like Shimmy and I were talking about the last time we went to the pool. We had practice that morning. I was really sore. I'm sure he was sore too. But as soon as we got out, like our joints and everything was just, I felt really good. About a week after Taco's second trip to the pool, the Celtics were in New York to play the Knicks. Late in the game, with the Celtics in control, 
Taco Fall made his NBA debut. Rolling to the basket to throw it up. He gets two. His first career NBA points. What he's doing right now, he looks a lot better. He looks a lot better. Could it be the swimming? Probably not. But either way, Taco Fall isn't going to stop now. I think some people are afraid to say that they can't swim, but um, don't, don't be afraid. Go out there and try it. That story came from Only a Game's Martin Kessler. It first aired in November of last year. For the record, Taco Fall is still swimming. Just this week, video emerged from inside the NBA bubble of Taco getting a swim lesson from Celtics teammates Ennis Cantor and Jalen Brown. Only a Game is produced this week by technical director Marquise Neal and me. We'll be putting together three more weeks of the best of Only a Game. Send me your requests via Twitter at KLGiven or email me at oag at WBUR.org. I'm Karen Given. Only a Game returns next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>